Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for listening to a very special bonus episode of The Hustle. This is my conversation with musician and producer Andy Ross. So Andy's career goes back a long ways, most of his life in fact. He was a session musician for a long time. He was in a band called The Immaculate Fools, who had a lot of success in Europe, mainly in Spain, not so much in the States. If you know them, it might be from this song right here. It's called Tragic Comedy. He also did a lot of production work. He worked with people like Howard Jones, who you know we love. We love Howard around here. Well, Andy just put out his first solo album called The Fear Engine. And it's a very uh, ambitious project, accompanied by a documentary, I should say, that focuses on 10 questions that get to the heart of what it means to be a human being at this time in history. There, these Some of these questions are like, Why do people lie? Why do people have a fear of failure? Why do people want to be famous? And uh, it covers these topics with some really thoughtful people. Now, I haven't seen the documentary. I've seen trailers for it, but um, I've heard the album. The album's one of my favorite albums of the year. So we discuss all of these things, but it's such an ambitious project. I really thought I wanted to share this conversation with you about Andy. We cover Howard Jones and we cover Immaculate Fools and all that stuff too, but I especially felt like this conversation needed to come out before the election. And uh, we only did this conversation a couple weeks ago and it was going to be difficult to fit it into a to an available Tuesday prior to the election. So we're putting it out now. Also, we have two copies of the Fear Engine on CD to give away and if, as usual, I will explain at the end of the episode how to do that. Okay, so please, this conversation starts out talking about the fear engine, but then it just gets into life and it gets into Howard Jones and it gets into music in general. In fact, wait till you hear who his dad is. That's how we kick this whole thing off. Okay, he called me from his home on Bondi Beach in Australia. Um, All right. Well, for starters, though, I know this isn't your career specifically, but I want I want to I think it's really fun to establish for everybody who your dad was. Can you tell us oh, a little yeah. bit about Ronnie Ross? Yeah, I mean, it's funny that the conversation always ends up going there, which you know, which is no surprise because he did have a kind of shining career in his, in the jazz world. So he was 
early in his career, he's probably in his 20s when he made a mark as a baritone saxophonist. And uh, I know he was always very proud of the fact that he was invited to the New York Jazz Festival in New York back in the 60s. And that he used to talk about how that was, you know, his first British artist to be invited to go and do that, which was a big coup then. But he's most notable amongst the sort of, well, I say younger, that's not true. No, not younger generations. That doesn't make any sense. People of my generation. Right. <laughs> That's not young. I was just comparing myself to my father's generation. Sure, but, sure. So, I mean, us, those of us who grew up in the 70s, uh, which is me, a teenager around that time, uh, would have known tracks like, well, the most iconic one of all would have been uh, Walking a Wild Side. Went to the Apollo, you should have seen him go, go, go. They said, hey, sugar, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. All right. Huh. Jackie is just speeding away. Thought she was James Dean for a day. Then I guess she had to crash. Valium would have helped that fashion. I said, hey, babe. Take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls say, do, 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 know that track because yep. it's so enduring and he did the sax solo at the end of that yeah um and although it didn't mean very much to him because he was far more interested in, in the people he had worked with like miles davis and, and frank sinatra and the whole list goes on and on of the jazz greats that he worked with that he was so proud of of course so when we were all saying, hey, dad, you've worked with, with like Lou Reed. It's incredible. Yeah. He was like, oh, who's he kind of thing. So he wasn't so <laughs> amazed. But the story behind that is really interesting, too, because the, the reason that he ended up doing that gig, getting that session, was because as a teenage boy, David Bowie used to come to our house to have sax lessons. Mm. And this is, the, this is something I learned quite recently, which was a shock to me, that that Bowie revered my father's work. He didn't just want to get sax lessons from him. As a teenager, it was one of his favorite artists. And so he pestered my dad to do, give him lessons. He didn't, my dad wasn't really interested in doing lessons. He, he did do them occasionally, but he didn't like doing them. And he certainly wasn't a natural teacher because he tried to teach me a couple of times, which was disastrous, but anyhow, <laughs> won't, won't go down that road. So Bowie, as a young, um, David Jones used to, uh, not David Jones, what's his name? David? Yeah, David Jones. David Jones. David Jones. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. used to come to the house and I, I can remember you know, coming to the house and he was like a little teenage, young teenager. And I can remember my dad, you know, this is, this is the funniest part of it really, saying, he's not very really good, this guy. 
don't, I don't think he'll, you know, get do come to much, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> I may regret saying that later. But anyway, the, and and actually Bowie was. Uh, I heard him doing an address to. I can't remember. It was an opening address at one of the universities over in the states. A famous one. I'm afraid I can't remember which one it was now. But he talked about this story about what Ronnie Ross taught him mm. was how to because he because Bowie was saying I could never play as well as this guy and I wanted to and I realised I was never going to. So why don't I try and take this idea and start distorting it and making things different and and using it as a tool for new and innovative thinking. Mm-hmm. And that was Bowie all over. Yeah. You know, so it, it, it certainly was a, a catalyst for some of his work. But the thing that I uh, was really amazed by was that Mojo magazine, I don't know whether you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. It's sure. UK UK magazine about the industry and the artists, musicians, etc. Um, they did a special on Bowie two or three years before he died called Heroes. And the whole, the whole thing was dedicated to him. And they interviewed, did a long form interview with Bowie about his heroes Hmm. and he picked 20 i think or i think it was something like that and in the top number four was there was my dad no way yeah as as uh one of his heroes and i had no idea i just thought oh he'd come that sax lessons from my dad and that was the end of it but you know he was very affected by it so i was very proud of that as his son no um but but then I carry on with the story because then when Bowie came to produce because he produced Transformer, uh-huh, you know uh-huh. the, 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 the album with Walking the Wild Side in it. Yep. And they were working in Wardour Street. I'm not sure which is in Soho in London. Uh, I'm not quite sure which studio it was, but anyway, they must. Have, I'm imagining they were sitting around thinking, we want something on the end of the track. Why don't we have a sax? And Bowie's going, well, I know the man for the job. I'll get my old sax teacher. Right. Now this this was him at and he was now his alter ego was now Ziggy Stardust, and at that time he would he would he would just you know day uh-huh. to day but you know he would be kind of you see him walking down the street he was kind of that was him you know yeah it was Ziggy and, uh, all the time yeah Ziggy and so when uh, my, when my dad turned up for the session Bowie said hi Ronnie do you recognise me. <laughs> <laughs> And he was like, well, a little bit, David. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And he was saying, well, yeah, I've heard, I've heard of you, you know, because Uh I know you're a pop star, kind of thing, because he knew Uh about that. He said, I'm the guy you do lessons to. Jesus Christ, it can't be true, you know. I think he was a bit more, uh, it was a bit more of a fucking hell. Yeah. Anything else? It can't be true. Anyway, so he did that session, and uh, it became an iconic sax solo. I mean, most people I talked to about that say. Oh yeah, I know that. I know that. I know. Everybody that. knows that one. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And um, funny thing is, though, my dad, I'm sure. I mean, he's passed away now years ago. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying he wouldn't mind. My dad was it was a, I guess, a casualty of the, the jazz scene in the '60s. It's funny. There's a, and what I mean by that is that, you know, there's a there's an idea that, sex, drugs, and rock and roll is kind of unique to rock music uh-huh. but but really the, the the hardcore were the jazz guys they really were the charlie yeah. parkers and the miles yeah. davis and thelonious those guys were into it deep badly absolutely yeah and it was and it was almost a badge of honor you know and it was it was an identity part of the identity mm-hmm. 
of being a cool cat, you know. And it and that does sound a bit contrived to put it that way, but I think there was a there was a part of that force was was, a, was there was an undercurrent of that as well as the type of personalities who are susceptible to that need, which is obviously a bigger part of the driver. And my dad was a, a sensitive man who had problems communicating. I would say, you know, and having a balanced life. The, and the only thing he had was his absolute passion for his work and his playing and in fact the only way he could really have a voice was through his instrument and so and so to, to, to my point here is that he was he went down that road of drink and drugs and so he was a, he was as a father it was a it was a bit of a sad affair because I didn't really have a lot of time with him because he was always away and mm-hmm. doing stuff and, and living that life and I imagine that's the case for a lot of children yeah. of those kind of uh, characters um, yeah, it seems that way. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure, but it I, I wouldn't surprise me. But it's a fascinating thing to to to, to observe and grow up with, too. I bet. Uh, and, yeah. I was going to say, didn't your dad, I just want to uh, yeah. add one more thing in here, didn't he also play on Savoy Truffle by the Beatles? Yeah, he did, yeah. he did. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't have much to say. Well, I do have a story about that, which again, he please. Yeah, he was, he was rather. Um, how can I put this? Not skeptical. I think there is. You fair to say there was in those days a kind of overtone of a sort of musical snobbery in jazz. There was a kind of idea that jazz was the thing, and everything else was a little, you know, subrogate slightly lower down the, the chain hierarchy, you know, in terms of credibility. And so, but he used to say. Ah, the Beatles, they're the exception. Oh. And, uh, we'd always say that, because they, they can write a great tune, as you'd say. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing about that story is having said that about him, he then got booked to do the Savoy Truffle gig at the Abbey Road. And um, George, I think it was George, this is how he said, told me the story. George Harrison said, wouldn't it be great? This sax is great, but wouldn't it be great to stick it through a fuzz box? And, uh, you know, and change the tone that way. And I think my dad was completely horrified, uh-huh. uh, you know, because he spent, you know, his whole life trying to perfect this timbre, this perfect tone. <laughs> and yeah. then they decided to go in and do that. But, you know, this is, this is similar to Bowie. You know, it was like this, this he, he didn't realise he was in the age of innovation, which was very interesting contrast to the 
what had then started to become a little bit of a conservative scene around jazz because jazz was always jazz the definition of jazz is kind of innovation so in its day it was always exploring new territory yeah. but ironically it became quite conservative and quite formulaic in certain areas. So it's interesting that they had this kind of in interface with two amazing innovators like the yeah. Beatles and Bowie. Big uh, time. So anyway, yeah, so that's that's what I can tell you about that. Interesting, wow. What a way to grow up with Dave, Davy Jones, David Jones coming over for yeah. sax lessons back then as a teenager, crazy. Um, well, I did, of course, I didn't know that. He was just a boy. Sure, of course, he was just a guy, yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, my enduring memory of growing up with a father like that was, as, as one, I never got to sort see him. True. <laughs> Two, when, right. he, when he did come home, he was nearly always a bit drunk hmm. and, uh, and or falling asleep. Hmm. And then when he was awake, he'd be practicing. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up with... <laughs> And this would go on, and it was only scales. He'd only ever do scales. He would never really? play. No. And he would do eight hours a day scales. Oh, oh. that's rough. <laughs> that's rough. Well, it's committed, that's for sure. That's and committed. Rough for me. It and, is. It's and, and a rough, rough uh, rest of us, yeah. Yeah. I want to kick that off because I thought that was some really fun trivia about your, yeah. your backstory. Um, yeah. Okay, let's talk about the Fear Engine. I got to say, Andy, I, th this album. Might be my favorite album of the year. Wow. I think, it's, I think it's beautiful. I love it. And I'm, I'll save what my favorite songs are until the end. But there's a story behind this. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to watch the documentary before talking to you. I wanted to. So anyway, tell us about this project and how, what the inspiration even is. Because I love this album. Thank you. Well, first, thanks. I'm so it's lovely to hear that. God, it's a bit of a long story, the, the, the sort of genesis of it. I think it started, well, it, it's, it's a question of actually trying to decide how far back I go, but I try and be succinct. When I was at school, I went to an incredibly rough school and there were teachers being stabbed. There were, uh, there was arson every week. There was, it was, a, it was futile and I had to basically try and survive. There was no lessons going on. And I can always remember feeling really bothered by that. Like, why is the world the world of my school, let's say, the, the microcosmic world of my school. Why is it so violent? What's going on? And I think I spent the rest of my life being obsessed in some way about what are the psychologies that drive this kind of madness? And of course, you can extrapolate that and, and scale that up to where we are now <laughs> in the yeah. world, yeah. where you see this sort of pathology and psychosis playing out, where people are doing what we might deem to think as kind of crazy things and misunderstandings and all sorts of chaos. So I've always been really interested in the psychology that drives these sort of behaviors. So that's really always been sitting as a seed in me. And then when I came to start work on my first solo project, this, this one, I realized that what I was writing about, I didn't even know I was doing it really at first, uh, was about all these issues, which actually rooted in uh, a, a failing marriage that I was in at the time as well, because some of the dynamics that we're talking about are illustrative. They just, they, you can illustrate them with an, an individual, sorry, not an individual, a, a partnering of two people, mm. and you can scale up the same problem to group level. Mm. And so, you know, ideas of fear and lies and uncertainty and all these sort of interesting things that drive our behaviors. So I, 
I was writing personally, but I, but I could see that that also made sense of the other questions that were stirring in my head about why people behave the way they do. So I, I basically wrote the album, and I don't know whether, well, your listeners, I don't know whether they wouldn't be aware of this, but I'm, I'm explaining now that what's unusual about the album is that it is a combination of album and film. So I've made a, doc, a documentary, as you as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. But they weren't conceived together. What what happened was, as I made the record, and these these issues started to come up in the lyrics, lyrical content. I decided at that point, somewhere along the line, that I wanted to make a concept album, mm. which an old fashioned idea of. It's got a theme and it's got a subject matter, and the whole thing has it. And let's all talk about it if you want to. You know, it's optional. You can always turn it off. <laughs> so I had this idea, which was actually inspired by Dark Side of the Moon. Mm. When I can't remember, uh, I, I ought to know, but I've forgotten the name of the track. Where you hear this guy who happened to be, I know, happened to be someone who was working at Abbey Road at the time. I think it was one of the engineers or one of the, might even be one of the cleaning staff. And they, <laughs> and they were recording him and they were saying, what do you think about dying? And he said, I don't, I, I'm not scared of dying. Blah, 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 blah. I can't remember exactly what he said, but do, are you, do you remember that, that yeah, part? Sounds familiar, the, but I can't remember what song it is. You might, if you, uh, well, you, you, I'm sure if you heard it, you'd go, oh yeah, I remember this. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the point is there's somebody talking about something in a, in a way that wasn't deliberately poetic. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't scripted, but it makes you think. Yeah. And it, it makes you go, oh, that's, Oh, that's interesting. So I thought I would do that on the front of, I wanted to introduce each track with a little bit of monologue, if you like, of somebody talking about the issues that were the content of the lyrics. Mm -hmm. So every track has got a little bit of speech beforehand. I'm probably going on too long in, in terms of the question you asked me. No. <laughs> uh, about so just so I clarify, so this was yeah. in, originally this was intended to be you're kind of going through a divorce. There's the world yeah. is in a crazy place anyway. You've yeah. had because of your upbringing, you've had these questions around good yeah. and bad and cho the yeah. choices we make and why people lie, why they what motivates them, and this start these ideas percolate to eventually make your first solo album, The Fear Engine. As you put, yeah. are putting this album together, it dawns on you. I'm I'm summarizing. That That's correct. Making a documentary on the topics as well would be interesting, right? Now, I was watching the trailer for it, and it was saying uh, it's really interesting. It starts out with like 12 people being really flummoxed by whatever question they were just asked. And then it shows, <laughs> yeah. and each one is a professor, a philosopher, a religious leader, a CEO, a child, whatever. And um, you find out that the question is, why do people tell lies? And it, yeah. so you're asking these big questions that are so pertinent to where our world is today. I mean, you're in Australia, but let me tell you, in case you don't know, America is kind of on fire right now a little uh, oh bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I am very aware of that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. God. And so, yeah. yes, it, uh, things are, uh, are a mess right now. <laughs> and so the questions that you're posing in this album are this is the exact time and place in history to pose those questions and to dissect them. Mm. I just think it's such yeah. an ambitious project that just occurred to you out of nowhere, but it turned into this big, beautiful project, this big, beautiful thing. 
well it's lovely that you say it that way but i would say that the questions are always have always been relevant it's just that more so even yes. than, than ever now Good and point. i think i think because i think that what my particular gripe is is that we are in a, a battle between higher levels of conscious awareness and law of the jungle and we need there's a tipping point going on in our world and we need to tip towards higher levels of conscious awareness and that's our best chance for the future if yeah, we go yeah. back to law of the jungle and you know your president is the archetypal version of that yep you know he is the silverback gorilla and you have to ask the question let's i mean i ask myself i say to myself why is everyone talking about trump we should be talking about the system that put him there that's the problem. Yeah. How to how how can how, there's something wrong with the system, mm -hmm. and so I'm interested in because um, there's many people like Trump around. You know, there's mm -hmm. loads of them. How did they get it? So I'm interested in in those. You know, so it is relevant. It's always been relevant. These questions have always been relevant. It's just they lie under our conscious awareness radar. We all worry about these sort of questions, but we don't really talk about them. And I think that. I think that what's going on in the world with COVID and politics and, and, and fear, what's happening is issues of fear are elevating. That's what's mm. happening. Yeah. And, yeah. and because of that, people are starting to ask questions. So that's why this may seem relevant now, because it's coming into people's radar now. Yeah. I think uh, going back to what you said, it, it is true. Like the, the system that allows for someone like Trump to wreak havoc is what's really a question here. I think the thing is, speaking for a lot of us, I don't think we realized how many people there were out there like Trump. That's, mm. uh, and I, and I mean, that's the shocking part is that you realize how much of our democracy in America anyway, and throughout in other parts of the country too, and other parts of the world is run on good faith. You assume that the bad guys, when they start acting bad, there's going to be checks and balances in place to get them out, to root that mm. behavior out mm. and to yeah. balance everything back into something that's, yes. that's good and decent. Yes. And then you find yes. out this guy who's going to break every one of those rules. There's yeah. millions of people out there supporting that behavior. You're that's right. This should be the we'll most obvious good versus yep. evil match in yep. history. And yet, where are all, where did all these people come from? Where's the yep. system to stop yeah. a person like this it doesn't exist well, we thought it did it doesn't no well this is this is where the fear engine concept comes into play because i call what you're describing i call the fear engine yes it's, it's the thing that drives behaviors so it's not you know the, the 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 good against the evil is is internal that one it's not there isn't a bunch of evil people and a bunch of good people it's within all of us mm. we all have this ability given the right pressures to turn into selfish behavior and animal animal behavior law of the yes. jungles so you will protect you and your own if you're under enough pressure mm -hmm. and so the problem we have here is an artificial level of fear in the world yeah. there's we, we, the, the trump has his legacy has he's elevating levels of fear out of all proportions so that mm -hmm. people really are scared and i'm talking about decent clever intelligent yes. people who are going christ the place is going to pop and and given enough pressure, people will start tipping towards, well, I'm just going to look after my family now. I know I, I want to be a good person, but I can't. This is too threatening. Mm -hmm. And that's based on this new phenomenon, you know, the post-truth era thing yep. of everyone is sitting at home going, the world's gone mad. Well, the reality is it hasn't really. There's some of it's gone mad. The media's gone and Trump and everything we see online 
you know, that's fed to us mm-hmm. is seemingly mad, mm-hmm. but we have to be aware. This is where the conscious awareness comes in. We have to understand that that's what's going on. It's not that people are bad and scary and, and, and nasty. Most people are beautiful, wonderful, want to help each other. And this is my particular belief. It's very controversial. I know a lot of people wouldn't agree with me, but I believe that most people have suppressed altruism. They want to be helpful to their next door neighbor, given half the chance. A lot of the reason they don't do it is because they fear some sort of misunderstanding or they're not confident enough because of inner fears about themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's all based on fear, which is why I became, in my studies over the whole, you know, for a long, long time, Mm -hmm. I've tried to figure out that that's what's driving all these these problems is fear. And we live in a world now where fear has become elevated out of all proportion, which you see on Facebook, you know, and the, the rise of um, yeah. suicides yeah. amongst young people, that kind of yeah. stuff is, is, yeah. um, is uh, one of the symptoms. Yeah. I want to ask about a few of the songs on here specifically. One in particular I want to ask about, it's funny you mentioned Pink Floyd because the track Somewhere in the Middle uh, reminds me so much of Us and Them. has to i i wondered if that was a conscientious you know tribute or paying respect or if it was coincidental because it sounds so much it reminds me so much of us and them yeah it's lovely i i think it's fantastic for me to hear you say that because Mm -hmm. um i've never no one's ever said that but it's certainly a very astute of you to pick that up huh Um, yeah yeah because i i i was certainly wasn't conscious well, it, you know, there's a fine line between plagiarism and inspiration. inspiration. <laughs> and, and, and it's a very hard one to, to actually define as an artist. I think anyone out there who's, who's an artist or creator will know that feeling. When you, and quite often you will copy something because it has had a deep effect on you. And then you think it was not until after the event that you think, oh, God, that, of course, that's what it was inspired. So, yes, when, when I that track... Mm-hmm when I was growing up, had a deep effect on me. I don't know what it is, it's the, the humanity in it. I, I don't know what it is, the vibe, the emotion, because emotion, you, you're basically an emotional engineer, if you like, when you're writing, 
Mm. I mean, you're trying to evoke emotion, aren't you? That more than anything else, and um, even just the quality of that record, us and them. Even if you just don't even take the words in at all, you mm. just really feel it. So I think that was going on with that track, and I think it's amazing that you picked that up. Mm. It's kind of gratifying in a way because it means Good. it hit the mark. I <laughs> love it. So I have another comparison. Prayer for the Ragged Rose. Reminds me a lot of Stevie Wonder's They Won't Go When I Go. Went down to see the scene. The rolling dust was not a dream. I felt the earth shaking under my feet. Filth and pain, the turning knife cut deeper with a lie. Fever stalking from its lair, friend or foe who goes there. Will he suck the life from the rose in our care? So hold this rose, this precious. which is almost like a sacred spiritual almost like a negro spiritual or something yes. like that in a way yes. and your prayer for the rugged Ro ragged rose reminded me so much of that song and i wondered if there was a connection there wow god i'm getting very flattered by those um <laughs> well, <laughs> um well no again i think you're very astute because Although I don't know the track you're talking about, oh, I probably okay. I, no, I probably do if I heard it. I'm sure I would. I'm sure it's. I'm sure Stevie. I'll just go. Oh yeah, of course that one. Yeah. And it probably went into my system somewhere. Uh, I do remember actually that there's a, a refrain at the, I think either beginning or the end of that song where I do a kind of backing vocal thing that reminded me of some of his sort of backing mm. vocal styles, and that was about it. I remember thinking, oh, that sounds a little bit Stevie Wonderish. Mm. So. But I certainly wasn't trying to do that. Okay. Yeah, I wondered. I just, it's beautiful. And it, it, it's, it, it was on his Fulfillingness first finale album, which I can't think uh -huh. came out in about 71. And yeah. then um, George Michael did a version of it on his Listen Without Prejudice album, which came out in oh, 91, yeah. I think. Anyway, I, it's a beautiful song in yours. I, know. I do know it. Now, that, now you've reminded yeah. me of those two yeah. albums. I do know it, yes. Um, and I, so I was curious. Now, my favorite songs on the album, first of all, Star is my very favorite. You're always there. You're always there for them. But they don't see that what you give is more than most would give. It's so plain to see, but you made a choice to make them shine. Stop, you're not the fool you think you 
and my second is where we are and the two are back to back and that's just like 11 minutes or so of pure gorgeous pleasure listening to those songs and so i'm wow. wondering what this inspiration for these are well i mean just you're asking me specifically about that but i just backtrack if it's okay just one to, to we were talking about prayer for the ragged rose and it may be interesting to note to, for, to, for you to know that this album took it's, it's almost embarrassing to admit it but it was probably about 15 years ago i started on it when was 9 11 it was about 9 11 anyway when was that uh, no 20 years what is the god god it's a long time anyway that prayer for the ragged rose is about 9 11 it's what happened as soon as i i was inspired by that but moving on to uh, your other question star yeah star is a song about well it relates to this idea gosh it's hard to not to go get too com convoluted here because of the, it was a concept album there is a kind of sequence that's very important in terms of asking questions till you come to the final question. Because really the final question in the album and in the film is how do we make the world a better place? But the sequence of these songs that sort of leads to that because it's such an overwhelmingly difficult question to answer. And I'm not suggesting anything, I'm just posing the questions because how would I know? So Star is the point in the album, which is about two thirds in, where we, I start to think about if fear is at the root of a lot of the problems, then how do we unpack or deal with fear? And I think uh, in, in, in self building self-esteem and understanding that everyone has a level of self-loathing in them, it's just a matter of degree. Addressing that would be a way of reducing fear because if you get more confident people, they're going to be more capable of being altruistic. Of course, you, of course, you will get some bad apples there, but I still believe firmly that the bad apples are a minority. So if you can express a lot of confidence in the world, it's like a rising wave will carry everybody. So STAR is focused specifically on people that I've known in my life who have been very modest and very down on themselves and as such weren't ever able to shine. And they will always spend their lives supporting others. And that's, a, that's something that I recognize in myself as a kind of flaw. Because in order to feel, self, to feel some level of self-worth, a lot of people will just support someone else uh, to make themselves good, feel good about themselves with, and totally ignore their own needs in the process. So that song is about those unsung heroes who do that. Like my mother, it's about my mother who's like that. Um, it's like a bunch of friends that are like that. So, the song is like, now you're the star, you know, you know, you're not the fool you think you are, is basically the line in the chorus. So yeah, that's, the, that's, that's what that one's about. Um, I wanted to ask you about, now did you, is this one of those situations, I believe it is, where you played like every instrument on this album? I, well, not every instrument. I mean, I, you know, most of them, most okay. of it. The, uh, there's a couple of exceptions. Uh, there's a, there's a uh, saxophonist and a, and a trumpet player. Mm -hmm. So the sax player was the inimitable and wonderful John Helliwell from Supertramp, the band, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Supertramp from the 1970s and 80s, sure. uh, who I always wanted to work with. So I got my dream came true there. And the other chap's a friend of mine, Kevin Robinson, who plays with um, Simply Red, another oh, band. Nice. Um, so uh, they were the only two that I I, I can't possibly attempt uh -huh. to play something like that. And they're beautiful. They're such great players. But yeah. Yeah. 
It's beautiful. What's the plan for the album? I mean, aside from the movie, which it's such an ambitious project, but yes. under normal circumstances, <laughs> would you be touring with this? Would it get played on the radio? What do you think? Well, again, I never questioned, never even, I never sort of uh, planned, pre-planned any of this. I just started working and, uh, you know, it got out of control, if you like. Mm-hmm. And I made this, this, this the, the idea was so ambitious to, you know, to see, to have this discussion about how to improve things in the world. I just wasn't thinking along those lines, but mm-hmm. having now that, now that it's out and the film is gaining quite a lot of attention as well, the people are asking this question more and more. So I'm trying to put together an idea of perhaps doing something live, which integrates how do I put this? That gives an honest representation of how the thing was made because it wasn't a band. It was me sitting here, as you see mm-hmm. me now, for hours and hours, years almost mm-hmm. on end, trying to put this thing together. A lot of it was confidence. Uh, there were confidence issues about, you know, who do I think I am? So it took a long time to make this record. Uh, normally I would be a backroom boy, you know, producing other people. And so it did take a long time to do, but I've got this idea brewing at the moment where I'd like people to see the reality of what, how records are made, because there's a kind of CGI version of music mm. where that people are not aware where you can put stuff together and I can artificially create this and this. Uh, so I, what I thought would, would try and recreate that live. So I would do a combination of me performing with musicians, plus some very clear indicators of the record so i might even play along with the record which comes in and out mm. um it's a weird idea that i'm brewing something together which mm-hmm. is a which hopefully would be a unique experience for the people to watch because it would be a more honest interpretation of how the record was put together as mm-hmm. well as a, the visceralness of a live performance but i don't know quite how i'm going to do mm. that but that's what i'd like to do well you probably have time to figure it out because COVID's not going away. Just that's yet. very true. That's very true. Well, I might just do a version uh, on Skype, you know, mm-hmm. on Zoom like this. Mm-hmm. It's some sort of, something put together where I can. Um, I'm going. I'm in te- and thinking of putting together um, a bunch of stuff about the making of the record anyway, which is a bit similar. Good. Well, yeah. I wish you the best. I love it, and um, yeah. I hope people will check out the album. Um, yes. Because it's totally worth it. Now, I want to hear some stories about your long career. I uh, am a gigantic Howard Jones fan. Oh, and, are you? Um, yes. <laughs> I, right. I'm a, I don't know if this will make sense to you or not, but I'm originally from Salt Lake City, Utah. Yes. And Howard, for whatever reason, is gigantic in, yes. in Salt Lake City, Utah. Yes, that rings a bell. Yes. Oh. And um, he comes and plays there all the time, and he sells mm-hmm. out large venues. He yep. knows what he's doing. So I love him. And yeah. you entered the picture, Howard's kind of radar on the Cross That Line album, and then stuck around for a long time. What, how yes. did you become affiliated with Howard? I became, so, so in the, back in the early 80s, I was doing a lot of session work as a guitarist. And I was working with a producer called Chris Hughes. Who's, yeah, he was um, just on the show a couple of months ago. Oh, was he? Oh, yeah, how yeah, I just interviewed him. Yeah. Oh, how brilliant. Well, Chris and I, Good friends. So, Good. Uh, yeah. And so he's one of Chris, my very favorites. Love oh, him. He's, Chris is fantastic. Yeah, he's yeah. great. Every, everybody loves Chris. He's just, he's just got this great way of communicating ideas and very clever man. Anyhow, mm-hmm. uh, so, so Chris, for, again, I can't go, can't go back too far because it gets, um, I'll meander on forever. <laughs> Let's just 
let's just keep, keep it simple. Chris uh, used to use me a lot. This is how I ended up doing the uh, Paul McCartney gig as well. Uh, oh, sure. Do that. Um, that, that's it, why you're on the Propaganda album as well, exactly. right? One, two, three, four. Exactly. exactly. Got, it. Got it. Yeah, it's all these connections. So yep. Chris um, used to use me a lot for session work because um, he liked the way I was never booked to play parts. I was always booked to invent parts. Mm. So he'd, I'd go in there and I, and I was actually, they booked me for, a, for I don't know, a whole month at a place called Real, Real World, not Real World, that's together, uh, Woolhall Studios. Mm. And w during that period, I worked on the propaganda, some of the propaganda stuff and also Howard Jones. So Chris was producing one of Howard's singles and that's how I met Howard. And um, we had, because Chris is a very meticulous mm -hmm. worker, uh, unbelievably so, mm. we had a lot of downtime, Howard and I, and uh, we used to play a lot of snooker. And oh, I, got... I love snooker. <laughs> yeah, do you? Oh, great. Well, I used to live in the UK. Oh, and, uh, did you? I got hooked on snooker. Did you? Yes. Oh, yeah, it's great. So you don't have it in the States then much? No, huh? No. Is it not, does it not exist there at all? There might be. It, there might be specialty bars or right, pubs yeah, that yeah. you know are are kind yeah. of aping uk culture yeah. and they might have yeah. a snooker table but you yeah. would never see it on television or no, anything no. like that right never. okay no it's a it's a wonderful sight when you first see one isn't it this huge table <laughs> it's amazing i'm um, embarrassed to say sometimes yeah. i will put snooker uh championships that from like this 80s and 90s that yeah are like three hours long i'll put them yeah. on youtube and have them yeah. playing in the background while i'm working fantastic well actually it's very um meditative isn't it, it is very, it is it's very very relaxing yeah, yeah it yeah, is yeah yeah interesting anyway uh -huh. we're diverse we, we get <laughs> off topics <laughs> Yeah, we'll talk about snooker for the rest of the time. We could. Um, yeah. So Howard, yeah, Howard and I um, met and became friends really over over games of snooker, and uh, we decided. Well, he sorry, he asked me uh, if I'd be interested in uh, writing with him. That's how it started. Um, he liked. He must have. I don't know what mm. I played. He must have heard some of the work I'd done, and it wasn't long before we became very good friends, and we wrote together the next. Oh no. He asked me to produce a track. That's right. So we produced together. We produced a Donald Fagan track. What's it called? Um, oh, IGY. Thank you. IGY. Yes. Thank you. 
and I had the pleasure of working with the guitar player from Steely Dan. One of there were many of them. No, Elliot Randall. Got it. Oh, okay. Elliot Randall, who who was, uh, you know, was he was famous. Well, so many of their solos were incredible. Like, on Do It Again, his his guitar 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 solos, fun, unbelievable. Anyway, so I had the pleasure of working with him because he he played guitar on it, Um, and um, yeah, we we became very close friends. And uh, I started to write. uh, Then we wrote an album together, which was called uh, Working in the Back Room, which was. I love that album. Oh, you know that one. Oh, yeah, I love it. It's it's not very well known, actually. That one. It's no. one of the. It's yeah. only available at concerts, I think. It's. Yes. Um, I bought it. it at a concert that I went to of his. I've seen him nine yeah. or ten times, wow. and um, I love that album. And then we did uh, the next album together as well, which is called People. And, and that was, I had the pleasure of uh, mixing, that was mixed by Bob Clearmountain, who in his day was 
the king of mixes. So we, we came over to your 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 neck of the woods to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I've I, sh- I mean we're just old friends now. And I and I Good. see him. You know I still see him whenever I go back to the UK. And so yeah, done nice. a bunch of, sort of live stuff with him as well. But uh, none of yeah. the ones that you would have seen because they're all in the UK. And you did a you've done a project with Robbie Bronneman, who yes. is how one of like Howard's main collaborators these days yes. right? has been for a yeah. while. The last few times I've seen Howard in concert, Robbie's there um, kind yeah. of programming things and stuff oh, yeah. like that. What is yeah. it you guys did together? Uh, well, Robbie's another very close friend. That's it's funny. It's, it's funny. You should be talking about both of my good friends. But anyhow, um, Robbie and I did a project called Tectonic uh, a long it. time ago. And it was a, uh, we were both very, uh, went through a phase of being very inspired by a band called Underworld. Oh, which is a, I love Underworld. Do you? I okay. love Underworld. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. So Underworld yes. was, uh, you know, a million miles away from the sort of material I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. But then I was very, very energized. And it, again, it was innovative in its day. And it was the first electronic band that I'd, that I'd heard that was had a real level high level of sophistication in the work mm-hmm. and subtlety and nuance mm-hmm. and you know i was i've always been trying to defend ele- electronic music to a lot of the, the more purist musicians out there saying that it's not computers it's just that it it started that way and it's evolving into this beautiful tool that mm-hmm. you can use to extend your uh, palette of sounds and expression and so Underworld were the first people that I ever came across that I felt had done that, had really sort of crossed the divide and or, or not crossed the divide, but kind of amalgamated those two worlds. Agreed. And uh, so I, we were both heavily influenced by that. And we put together a, a similar kind of vibe with the Tectonic Project. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, I- I love uh, I love Underworld. That's so interesting. They don't come up in conversation nearly enough. Have you were no. you a fan even of like Carl Hyde's early version? You know, the first two Underworld albums yeah. are more like alternative rock albums, and then suddenly yeah. Dub No Bass comes out in '94, yeah. whatever that is, and yeah. it's unlike anything I've ever heard before. And they've mm-hmm. been trendsetting basically ever since. 
Well, I think this is the point. We're funny, we've been talking a lot tonight about all this. Uh, tonight, I say tonight, whatever time. Tonight, my time. <laughs> Your time, yeah. Um, about innovation, innovators and yeah. people who are, or, who are who are pushing envelopes and trying new ideas. And 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 it's funny that they should come up in the you know in the context of what we were saying earlier, Bowie and uh, and I can't remember who else we were talking about, but um, but you know the idea of experimentation without it being a kind of navel gazing experiment, mm -hmm. you know, where people mm -hmm. just they were able to translate emotions from one set of tools to another set of tools and continue having in, you know, the emotion cut through. And mm -hmm. that's a hard thing to do. Um, well, actually it's not because here's a story. I don't know whether this is relevant. I don't know what time, but I'll quickly tell you. Please. I was, as, as a producer, I was fascinated with the building blocks of music. Like I'd, I'd worked at this level and fairly, fairly high level. And then, and then it was like, well, what, why do we respond to music the way we do? So I decided to do some work with a, um, a music therapy organization called Nordoff Robbins, because I thought that deals at the very basics of, of when, you, when, you, when you, you're trying to help people to overcome issues and problems and, and stuff. So, uh, and, but the woman who was running it, wonderful woman, um, was very anti sort of contemporary what she would call contemporary music it was very much rooted in classical kind of ideals uh, I, I sort of styles rather and you know the kind of stuff that you would have learned at school and very basic stuff which is interesting but i kept saying well what about rock and roll and what about what about and then i mentioned electronic music and she said well that's not music you know mm. and then i thought well, electronic music is, if nothing but primal, it's the most primal music you'll ever come across. And that's mm -hmm. totally visceral. Yeah. Yeah. That's not, you know, that throbbing four to the floor thing, you couldn't get more tribal than that, mm -hmm. really. And it's never going to go away. It's not, yeah. so it's not a question of sophistication. It's a question of, of using the deeply guttural response that we have to dance. Yeah. With, with these levels of sophistication and i think that's what underworld were, were really um exploited brilliantly. that's well said yeah hmm. yeah i would agree um before we move off howard tell us a howard yeah. story tell us something <laughs> there's yeah. so many i don't know where to start really tell us i mean give me a clue what sort of story <laughs> well okay so <laughs> okay good point so he's known for being like you know all of his songs are really positive and uplifting yes. and yeah. um there's a kind of a spiritual nature to him. I know he's a diehard Buddhist. Um, yes. Have you ever seen Howard be angry or have you, um, has it always been, he is exactly who he, the, he lives the life or the attitude that he sings about? Wow. Well, this is a very interesting question. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing because when you say, have I seen him angry? Well, yes, I have, <laughs> most definitely. I mean, you know, when you, when you are producing a record with someone, True. it's like a marriage. Uh, it's a marriage. And, uh, and there are going to be moments when you piss each other off. And, you know, and we were working mostly together. There, weren't, there were other musicians, but they would come and go, you know. Difficult to, to, to talk about this, uh, I, you know, without crossing a line into it being mm. a bit too personal. But I think that Howard is, uh, I, I have so much respect for Howard. He's always, and, and, and i tell you why. I mean, we're, we're talking about music as just a vessel by which somebody expresses themselves, right? Their yeah. personality is what shines through. The music is only the medium through which that takes place. And so the integrity that someone has, if, if, they, can, if they can allow that to, to shine through, then that's going to always affect people. 
but so Howard's whole vibe is the positive. It's the whole thing is like optimistic. It's like, let's make the world better. Let's, I think that's one of the reasons why we get on because we were always, we were always banging on about these things together. Mm-hmm. And, and he's really concerned. And so Howard's had a, a bunch of, I think, personal things which have led him to this, this fantastic, optimistic, inspiring work that he does. And he has, there's no doubt he's inspired, well, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands yeah. of people. Yeah. So he, you know, his legacy will endure, I'm sure, because of that. And, and that's one of the reasons why we have a lot of respect for each other, because I think we're both totally preoccupied with, with these ideas. Yeah. Yeah, um, you can tell. But, yeah, he yeah. seems very zen, and uh, oh, yeah. he seems to uh, work hard toward being always a force for good, and um, absolutely, and uh, and a light, you know. Yes, and I really respect him for that, and have yes. always appreciated it about him. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think that people who are in a position, or all creative people, whether they're whether they are notable or not, is actually irrelevant. And this is this is one of the issues that comes up in my film actually is that people who are overwhelmed with the idea that the world is you can't fix this too bad too crazy there's nothing we can do about it really are overwhelmed they believe that there's nothing they can do and i think this is the thing that came out of the film and it's certainly one of the doctrines that howard would believe in is yes there is something you can do but the difficulty is that we what the mistake we make is that we think we've got to start a political movement or something the point that that comes out that emerges from the film after me interviewing because the, the by by the way i haven't mentioned this the format of the film is me interviewing many people mm. and asking these questions and the thing that comes out the wisdom that comes out is the fact that you can make a difference but within your sphere of influence so that comes back to you as an artist and you think well if i'm going to write about something why don't i write about something that you know is going to maybe help things yeah. or at least get I, I don't know or or ask a question or or try and just or uplift be, uh, or inspire I don't know. uplift yeah. inspire you be know and, and for good that's and right and bad. well apart from be the change you want to see if you if you want to find yourself then lose yourself in the service of others that's right and that is the whole kind of thinking that emerges from the film is that a lot of people are so unhappy because they you know they feel they're no good but yeah. one of the best ways out of that is to start helping other people yeah. uh, and put the energy there and then it's so that's a win-win scenario that yeah. that is that is something that that's a that's a philosophical approach that we can start to adapt if we're going to try and go for higher levels of conscious awareness mm-hmm. stop thinking about win losing culture and think about win-win culture where there's you know where something you do benefits you and someone else at the same time yeah. anyway i'm going off at a tangent here no you're uh, right um mm. okay on your dossier there it says that you worked with robert palmer yes. and um he's somebody that i don't think gets enough respect i think mm. because more people are only familiar with addicted to love and simply irresistible yeah. They yeah. think that's all Robert Palmer is. And in reality, those are the outliers. For yep. the 15 years prior to that, yep. he was making such interesting music with people yep. like the Meters and Little Feet backing him yep. up. Yeah. So innovative, so different. Yeah. If yep. anything, those songs are him selling out. That's, yes. that's not necessarily him at his best, if you ask yep. me personally. 
And so I love him and I just think he deserves more attention. Tell me about your relationship with Robert Palmer and what you did. Well, it's only it's only cursory. I can't say that I know Robert Palmer, and he certainly wouldn't have known, wouldn't have remembered me. It was just that um, I was invited to uh, around that time, actually, when he had these big hits like uh, "Simply Irresistible" and "Addicted to Love." He was asked to go to a uh, a festival in a TV festival. It was actually it was in Italy, and I came along as actually his keyboard player. Mm. Um, and so I can't say that I got to know him, but I worked with him on this on this project. But what was interesting about that was that it was of at the time when it was well, Live Aid was eighty five, I think, mm-hmm. wasn't it? The Live mm-hmm. and it was a few years after that, not many. So there was still this trend that had been started by Live Aid to get everybody. If there was a festival, then you have, must have all the bands on stage for the last song. Mm. to show a kind of a, 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 a united front, mm-hmm. uh, <coughs> which was a hard thing to achieve. I don't know how Gild, well, I'm amazed that Gildaf was able to do it because traditionally before that, bands were, I think, too full of egos and they didn't really mm-hmm. like anyone else. They just thought they were great and they didn't mm-hmm. really want to mix. Um, but this trend was going on. It kind of the, the, it, the momentum carried on for many years after. So when we did this festival, we went to perform... I can't remember what it was, but it, was, it certainly would have been those songs. Um, and uh, we had uh, who uh, um, Joe Cocker was also on oh, the nice. bill. And I think I can't remember who else. There was an English band called the Fine Young Cannibals. And sure. Yeah, you remember them? Yeah, of uh, course. Uh, yeah. Okay. And um, and it was Joe Cocker's. Hmm, it was his birthday, but it, what would it have been? His sixties or his seventies? Probably sixties. I don't know, actually. It's in eighty, in eighty, well, that would have been in. Sorry, no, that would have been ninety-four. Anyway, whatever. And uh, I had there's this funny moment where it was the last song we'd done our performing, and then the last song because it was Joe Cocker's birthday, he came on for the last song to do a little help for my friends, which is you know probably mm-hmm. his most famous song. Mm-hmm. Um, and the I was round backstage and the uh, floor manager was rallying everyone together saying, come on, come on, come on, because the last song, you got to get going on stage. And I was thinking, oh, I don't really, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll hover around at the back somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I realized this is Joe Cocker singing, mm-hmm. little help from my friends. Why am I at the back? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I started to, I should have said, during the, the song, I'm sort of shuffling my way, you know, clapping, trying to pretend, you know, I'm hey, having a great time. And then move, moving forward uh, between the, the other musicians, I ended up standing right next to him as he's screaming. No and way. so I had this, I had this amazing experience of standing, you know, like two feet away from Joe Cocker while he's doing that, giving uh-huh. him that stuff. And, uh, and suddenly became aware of the fact that I, was, I wasn't even looking at the crowd anymore. I was just uh-huh. staring side on, staring at him, you know, completely... <laughs> In awe, looking right. shell shocked, right. um, and that's anyway. That's my lasting memory of that, and also the fact that we were, we were in a um, trying to get to the festival. There was there were, we were going in uh, these sort of you know cars, sort of limousine-ish things, uh-huh. and there were crowds in the street, stop you know, banging on windows. They didn't even know who we were. They were just banging on the windows and trying to trying to uh, yeah. put their uh, autograph, you know, get autographs and sure. Uh, and uh, one of the guys who came with us was a 
because I don't know why this happened, but he was a guitar teacher who'd never done anything like this before. I don't know why he was picked, but he came along and he just kept saying, I'm a guitar teacher from stress. Leave me alone. <laughs> and uh, that's my two um, lasting memories of that. So I, I, I never really got to know him. So that's to be honest. Okay. Be okay. Just a um, we should talk about the Immaculate Fools. Mm. I, um, I didn't, I don't, you know, I vaguely remembered tragic comedy or oh, tragic, yeah. um, tragic That's comedy, right. tra tragic That's comedy. It? Yeah. 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 Um, Cause I mean, I've been <laughs> English, British alternative rock of the eighties specifically is yeah. like my sweet spot. That's my oh, favorite really? kind of music. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I vaguely remembered that song, but um, I mean, you guys were a thing for a while for about yes. 10 years or so. You're yes. touring, you're opening up for bands like Simple Minds, who are one of my top 10 favorite bands of all time, and uh, The Stones and Bob Dylan and Iggy Pop. And what was that like? What was it, what well, was it like I'm, being in a band for, like that for those <laughs> years? Well, I'm sorry to disappoint here because the, the names you just mentioned were, they, they kept, that was after I had left the band. Oh, um, so I wasn't man, I'm getting all kinds of bad information. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Um, I, but no, but I mean, I st uh, basically it was a band that I started with the singer Kevin Kevin Witherall. Well, I, when I say I started, we we were founder members. There were others. My mm. brother were two sets of brothers actually. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I can't really ask answer that question. Uh, it's funny though. What I can tell you is that um, Kevin, who the singer, who is now just about to be seventy, mm. um, as contacted me last year and said did he that the early days were the best days mm. that and and i know and said and he said can we work together again so i've just been over in spain last summer and produced the new immaculate fools album no way uh, yeah and it and and it's just the two of us so um That's uh, on the out on the, making the album and then we've got some local musicians over in spain to you know to embellish some of the parts mm. but uh, it's it's being re, re, revived now, and the new album um, called Stardust and Water. That's the one I've just done. Is uh, it's I think it's number. Well, it's, it's done incredibly well so far. Well, it's getting notoriety already in wow. Spain. about Spain uh, when we when we were because we were in our 20s when we did this 
um, was Spain just went crazy for it. Mm. And we've never, uh, never really understood why, but so much so that the singer now lives in Spain because he That's gets crazy. a lot of attention. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, wild. So. Didn't, mm. you rec didn't you produce, uh, produce the uh, toy album? Toy, the toy shop. Toy shop. I was going to say it's yes. Toy Story, and I knew that wasn't right. <laughs> yeah, the toy shop. No, album. not that one. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I did. And uh, yeah. and all the sub all the ones before it as well. Um, so I we had. Uh, I can't remember how many. I well, I, we started off. There's some stories in here because we started off working. We were very young, and we got signed to A and M Records, um, and we were very naive. So there were a lot of politics playing out in the record companies in those days. Because in the eighties, there was a lot of money, a lot of profit, mm -hmm. and a lot of backhanders and favors and back scratching. And I, looking back, I think that <coughs> we were partnered with the wrong producers mm. uh, Colin Thurston was the first producer we Ooh, nice so you know of him so Colin Thurston is where at the time was doing Duran Duran mm -hmm. um, and I can't remember the other bands that he was notable I think he did some stuff with Bowie early on I think he did uh, yeah um, but anyhow um, that was a very bad marriage because mm even though we were very good boys, we were definitely not rock and rollers, you know, in the, the, mm -hmm. the typical kind of awkward artist. We were just, yes, whatever you want, we'll do. Mm -hmm. um, but I was, uh, I'd always done all the demos and I was sort of learning the ropes as a producer in those days. So I kind of had, oh, I was always sitting with him at the desk and I could just see that the, the, the sound that I had in my head was nothing like the sound he had in his head. Mm -hmm. And uh, it didn't work out. And uh, so halfway through the first album, we had to check, swap producers. And then we got went from Sublime to the Ridiculous. We went from Colin Thurston, who was totally into the new technologies at the time. Mm -hmm. So he was very much, you know, um, AMS samplers and stuff. They were the early samplers. Um, and then we were left with this multi-track, very kind of rigid sounding, and then given to someone called Glenn Johns. And oh, Glenn Johns... Glenn Johns, okay. yeah. Right, so Glenn Johns has produced, you just pick a band in the 70s and he's probably yeah. produced it. Yeah. You know, this, 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 the, you know Zeppelin and uh -huh. Eric Clapton and the, the, the yeah. list just goes on and on and on. Um, and he could not believe his ears when he put the, got the multi-track up because mm. uh, he, he heard a snare drum that was a sampled snare drum. He'd never even heard of a didn't even know what it was. And I said to him, this is a sampled snare drum. What's a sampled snare drum? <laughs> um, because he was definitely old school. Yeah. And he's, he, he, it's fascinating. I, again, I think you might like to hear this, this story because he, he, this was in the era of the emerging year, era of SSLs and automation and, and nuance, you know, to, and con obsessional control, which was, which was at the danger of losing soul. And it definitely, one of the reasons why the 80s was as barren as it, some of it was as barren as it was, was because of this new lesson to be learned about how to use computers. Mm. But Glenn John, Glenn Johns was, he just wasn't interested in that world. So he had started out as a, as an engineer and what he'd done is built his own, his own console and he'd built it in, it looked like the console of the TARDIS out of Dr. <laughs> 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 and it and it and it it was it actually went around him, so only mm. one person could sit at the desk. And what I thought was beautiful, very clever, was the the, the faders were designed in three pairs of threes, three and two, three and two, like like the black notes on a keyboard. Mm -hmm. 
so that he didn't have to look down. And he he just played. He played it like a keyboard when he was really. Doing it. And he had, and he had it was theatrical because he had speakers the size of barn doors, mm-hmm. uh, which in the and back then that was starting to go away. It was all near fields starting to turn up then, but he he still had these big barn doors. And then he would say, right, I'm ready, boys. Be quiet. I'm going to do the mix. He'd turn the lights off and he'd have a spotlight on him. <laughs> and, he'd, and, he'd, and he'd have it full volume and he would mix. And, and, he wouldn't, and, and he'd mix from the beginning to the end of the track. You know, there's no uh-huh. spot. And he would, and he would uh, there's no automation. And he would play it like for the Phantom of the Opera. No way. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a legend for a reason. Yeah, that's so it right. makes sense. It does, yeah. And and there was no saying, you know, if I said, "Well, it was pretty good, Glenn, but what about the?" He said, Are you, "Sorry, have you got a problem? Are you arguing me?" Uh, no, you know no, I'm Glenn Johns, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He and I, God, I learned so much about producing. Actually, I was so looking back, I was so grateful for those experiences because I have worked with so many interesting producers, who all have totally different styles mm-hmm. and personalities, and. Um, he was a dictatorial producer. You did it his way or not at all. I could see that. I could yeah. see that. Wow. These stories are the best. <laughs> well, um, thanks, Andy, for talking with me. Before yeah. we go, I want to hear. Yeah. So you've told some great stories. Tell us, tell us one more. Tell us when you look <laughs> back over this career and the people you've you know, collaborated with and produced and you're making your own music or whatever, being an Immaculate yeah. Fools, what's your favorite story? Did you meet a hero? Did you play a big show? Did you hear yourself on the radio? Did you have a great groupie or a big night in a big town or whatever? Hang on a minute. If we could go through every one of those questions, then that'd be fine. (laughs) I was just, because as you say, I'm clicking off. Did I meet? Yeah. I mean, I'll try and answer. So yeah, I I remember meeting Peter Gabriel a couple of times. I can't remember the exact year. It was probably in about the 90s, 1990, that sort of time that uh, Peter Gable had this thing called, he used to call it the WOMAD Recording Week. And that was it's the same idea as WOMAD, the live festivals that he used to do. But he, what he would do is in his studios in Box, um, uh, it's called Box, a little village there uh, near Bristol in the West Country in England. He used to, uh, so he, he had a studio called Real World Studios and it was quite a big complex. And once a year he would invite uh, musicians from all around the world, the same kind of musicians that would be at the WOMAD Festival. And it would be called the WOMAD Recording Week. And um, he would invite all these amazing musicians to come together and basically hang out in his studio. He would bring in a couple of mobile studios as well. So that basically there was these opportunities for all these amazing musicians to just record. And they have great engineers and great facilities. And uh, I can remember wandering around um, it was kind of a dreamlike experience because it was like being at a pop festival, but everyone, including the audience, was the crowd, amazing musicians mm-hmm. in some form or another from around the world. So a couple of stories, spring, actually there are three stories that, that, that spring to mind around that day that, that, that were notable to me uh, that I remember. One was walking across um, a lawn and seeing this beautiful or hearing this amazing Chinese harpist playing. She, she was sitting on her own in the lawn playing. And then I walked into one of the um, mobile studio uh, um, um, studios that was set up, <clears throat> and Massive Attack were in there, trying to figure out 
what they might like to put on this particular part of the song because everything was just being improvised. People yeah. were just working really fast. And I, had, I said, hey, by the way, guys, I've just heard this amazing harpist out on the, uh, the, the, the lawn there. You might want to check her out. And sure enough, they, you know, that, that was, they, they, they mm -hmm. uh, brought her in and did that. And I can remember that being an extraordinary moment. But wow. the best place to hang out, actually, was the canteen because there was a makeshift canteen. And that was uh, another great story because you'd go in there and there would be African drummers and Brazilian percussionists playing the tables basically mm. and playing glasses and just having this big jam and people singing and it was and these are all like the world's best kind of most talented musicians so it was a hell of a place in fact that's where they should have put the mics they should have the mics mm. in the canteen good idea anyhow but uh, the story uh the other story that's that that springs to mind is you know i was in awe of you know the stature of someone like Peter Gabriel, and and to and I was felt incredibly privileged to be there. Oh, I should hasten to add, I wasn't actually invited. I was there with a partner of mine who was a cellist who used to work with him a lot. Mm. But anyhow, that's beside the point. But I was wandering around the complex, and it was it was you could go anywhere, uh, uh, open doors everywhere, and I wandered up to his own studio, which was at the top of. Uh, the one of the main buildings and it was in the attic space and he wasn't there uh, I knew it was his studio because I had been there previously and I just was able to spend a bit of time walking around on my own absorbing the atmosphere of this place and um, it was quite fantastic because he's definitely a hero of mine and then as I'm standing there in he walks with a cat in his arms looking like the villain looking like a Bond villain and wearing a kind of, because he had this interesting style, he had that kind of interesting, kind of strange, but unique kind of style of dress wear as well. Mm -hmm. And he looked, he looked like one of these characters from the film. And he said, oh, hi. And uh, I said, oh, hi. And I was a bit thrown. And, uh, and he said, how are you? And I said, I'm fine, thanks. So how are you? And he said, oh, I've just come back from Sting's wedding. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, right then. You know, and I was really <laughs> lost for words. Didn't really know what to say. You know, how was it? Fine. Um, <laughs> it was just an extraordinary him, and he was a lovely guy. And he was—he's he, one of those people in life, you know. When you think, you know, I'm not disillusioned by this guy. Yeah. This, this is uh, by meeting him. So, yeah. and the one—I'm sorry, going on about this, these particular stories, but another one that sprang to mind was later on in the day we were going off to. Um, there was a, a WOMAD uh, gig that night somewhere in Bristol, and somehow or other I ended up walking with him backstage mm. and as we were walking towards he said oh, i've got this great joke for you <laughs> and he telling me this joke something to do with a, 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 a boat a sailing boat and the problem is because again i couldn't help being in awe of the fact that i was standing next to peter gable i could not listen to the joke properly right. <laughs> all i all i could do was fake a laugh at the end of it right. so I, I, <laughs> I, I had actually no idea whether or not it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, <laughs> the only thing I remember is him saying at the end, Miles Davis told me that joke. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> And all I could think is, I'm out of my depth. I'm out of my depth. That's all I could think. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So. Uh, I met Peter Gabriel briefly at the Sundance mm. Film Festival in, okay. I think, 1999. And, um, 
he, first of all, I'm, you know, you're sitting there waiting for a movie to start and he's not who you expect to walk in the door and come watch a no. movie, you know, in this little theater oh. that I'm in. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, then afterwards the movie's over and I'm walk out in the hallway and he's standing there. And so I just go talk to him for a minute. And yeah, yeah. this was, like I said, 99 and he, uh, he was just kind of a spacey guy, you know, this is Utah yeah. where I'm from, but no famous people ever go there hardly, especially him. And I was like, when yeah. are you ever going to put out new music? When are you ever going to come here on in concert? Yeah. Like, yeah I'm, I'm working on all that right now. But of course he yeah. did, you know, still another yeah. something and before. Yeah. Anyway, he's just a trip, <laughs> yeah. but a genius. He is. And, and, and he does have real charisma, that man. I yeah. mean, you stand there. It, it, I don't think it was just my own fear on display. I think he, he you know, some people exude charisma yeah. and it's something about them being completely real yeah. and authentic that, that creates charisma. I think charisma is the, basically is what's left over when you take away the bullshit. Interesting. Ooh, I like that definition a lot. Um, mm. Okay. Well, so to wrap it up, but I was watching the vlog, uh, the vlog posts that you put up on YouTube, and um, on in another on the TV, and those are great. And I thought maybe the, is the movie out? Is it where would I? Is it still being made? What's this? Where's the movie? How do we see the movie? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit confusing um, because the vlogs are describing, in fact, I'm starting a whole new set of vlogs that talk about each question that appear in the film, but the movie is still in the, Got it. on the on the film circuit um, okay. and it's doing pretty well at the moment. It's gathering sort of laurels as it goes, um, which I'm very pleased about. But at this point, I need to um, try and sell it to a network to get even broader expo exposure. But they, okay. the film is finished. It has, it has been finished quite a long time ago. Okay. Well, so anyone who wants to see it, we've got a link yeah. to your website in the yes. show notes for this episode. You can just go okay. there and tap on it, keep tabs of everything. Yeah. And uh, exactly. But anyway, thanks yeah. for talking with me, Andy. I just have found this project and that album especially so interesting and so moving at a time. This is the time. This is the yes. time in history where this yes. project matters. And so wow. I uh, wanted to share it with people. Well, that's so nice of you. And, and it's coincidental. I think this problem has always been around, but <laughs> it is particularly pertinent right now. And uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> Just, yes, yeah. it is. It's worth talking about. It is. All right, there you have it, Andy Ross. I, uh, I just feel like that's an important conversation, not only politically, but musically as well. We touch on everything that matters. Matters, especially right now. It is such a timely project, I think. I want to close it out with that one of those other songs that I mentioned as being one of my favorites, Where We Are. So again, I have two, two copies of the Fear Engine on CD. They are going to be made available to any Tier 1 Patreon members. And Tier 1, as I always say, is $2 a month. You set it and forget it, okay? And that will put you in the running immediately and automatically for any swag we ever get. I will announce the winners of those CDs on Sunday, November 8th. Is that this, is that this coming Sunday? Um, via Patreon. So the link to Patreon is in the description of this show. Go in there, sign up for the two $2 a month thing, tier one, $5 a month lets you know who, what interviews I have coming up and you can submit questions and it'll put you in the running to win copies of this CD. And again, it is so worth it. It's a beautiful piece of art and it really matters. Okay. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, 
A huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for all that you do. And uh, we're going to have a regular, you know, uh, Tuesday episode coming up this weekend, too. It's Election Day. Get out and vote, as if you haven't heard that enough already. But it's a last push. Get out and vote, folks. And hopefully you vote for the right person in this one. Anyway, we love you all. We'll talk to you later.